Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another edition of Politico's Nerdcast. I'm Scott Bland, your host. This week on the Nerdcast, Michael Cohen spends three days on Capitol Hill before spending three years in prison. We're going to ask the big question, does his testimony move us closer to an impeachment proceeding? And why or why not? Plus, on the campaign trail but off the road, we're going to check in with two of our intrepid 2020 reporters who are going to tell us what they learned about Iowa hospitality after a pair of crazy reporting trips in some pretty hairy weather. Uh, As always, we're taping this a little bit before noon Eastern on Thursday. Today, that's February the 28th, so it's all up to date as of then. And right now, we're still digesting the breakdown of the denuclearization summit in Vietnam between President Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un of North Korea. So plenty more to come on that in future episodes. But for right now, let's get started on our discussion this week. I want to welcome our guests. We have Politico's man on the Mueller investigation, Darren Samuelson. Hello, Darren. Hello, Scott. Thank you so much for joining us. And Nerdcast newcomer, but podcast pro, Anita Kumar from our White House team. Anita, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. And as always, we also have senior politics editor Charlie Matessian here to help us break it all down. On to our first data point, 35000 as in $35,000. The president's former attorney, Michael Cohen, showed Congress a copy of a $35,000 check that Donald Trump wrote to Cohen while Trump was president. And Cohen says it was to reimburse hush money he paid to a porn star. Just going to let that settle for a second. (laughs) That's just one of the revelations from a a public congressional hearing on Wednesday, and we're going to unpack it now. Uh, There are really two threads here that that, that we can dig into. There's the the legal jeopardy from what Michael Cohen said and the political jeopardy. Let's, Darren, let's, let's start with you. Let's start with the legal jeopardy. You've been reporting on the investigations into the president for two years now. What jumped out at you from the Cohen testimony uh, before the House committee yesterday that will also jump out to Robert Mueller or prosecutors from New York or prosecutors elsewhere? Well, I don't know that federal prosecutors in uh, New York or in Mueller's office were surprised by anything yesterday. They've been debriefed by Michael Cohen. They approved his ability to go testify. Let, let, me, let me put it another way, I yeah. guess. What, what, what about his, his testimony yesterday will, will tell us about what those prosecutors uh, – might be looking at it, might be going to next. Sure. That's where I was going with this. Because for the rest of us, for the world out there at large, for Congress, which really hasn't you know, been able to push buttons that they were able to push yesterday, that was the revealing part. And we did get to see a little bit of leg in terms of like where uh, federal prosecutors in New York are going uh, because of things that Cohen said he couldn't talk about. So you know, he, he implied that there were other investigations into Donald Trump that we weren't thinking about or weren't aware of before. We've got this sort of very broad idea that the uh, federal prosecutors in New York are looking into his inauguration, that they're looking into his company, uh, that they're looking into the campaign finance uh, stuff that Cohen has himself been netted uh, for. And it's kind of these, you know, these random investigations that are sort of floating out there. It reminds me a little bit of the Russia investigation before Robert Mueller was actually appointed to be the special counsel 
counsel. We knew that there was an investigation back then into Paul Manafort, and we knew there was an investigation into Carter Page, and there were these things sort of floating around. But once Robert Mueller became the special counsel, it all kind of fell under his umbrella. And in New York, that's not going to happen, I will say, because it's, it's a different situation. It's, it's, a, um, it's, a, it's a wider spreading thing. But that's part of the magic, I guess, that Southern District of New York people would say is they have this wide berth of jurisdiction to look at financial crimes, to look at uh, all kinds of things that are in their jurisdiction. And so, you know, from the from the the Cohen testimony yesterday, we were able to sort of see, you know, that Donald Trump Jr. and and the the Trump children and the Trump company, anyone who's been a part of the Trump company, is very much under investigation. And, and you know, Cohen was only able to say so much about that. And then, you know, from the congressional side of things, we know Elijah Cummings is going to follow up on every single name that was out there yesterday. They're going to, if they haven't already been subpoenaed, I don't think that they have, but they will be soon subpoenaed. And we know that the Trump organization itself is pushing back and saying, hey, knock this off, leave us alone. So we're going to have an interesting standoff. And I will say as one more last thing, the Trump organization cannot rely on executive privilege the way that the White House can. That's really interesting. So yesterday, I mean, it, it was an event, but it also kind of is going to trigger a cascade of events in the future. Yeah, it was the first you know hearing for House Oversight. Obviously, a huge blockbuster hearing. Um, I would think that when they go back at this again with future hearings, whether it be an oversight or judiciary, which you know has the impeachment power, uh, or House Intelligence, where you know Michael Cohen is is going before a closed door in, in interview. They've got a lot of uh, unfinished business that they feel Republicans, when they were in control of Congress, didn't get at. They have a long list of people who weren't interviewed or questions that weren't asked or documents that weren't requested. And all of that is going to happen now for the next, you know, many, many months while Democrats, you know, have their foot on the gas for the investigative uh, agenda that they've got. And Anita, that kind of segues us into the, this other uh, uh, question of jeopardy from from this, this Cohen hearing, the political Jeopardy. What was your sense of how the the hearing yesterday played with the folks on Capitol Hill uh, who were watching at the assembled uh, political masses? Was it a little bit of like a, a Rorschach test that everyone kind of saw what they wanted to see? Yeah, or? I really do think that it was like that. I mean, you know, Washington was riveted. We were all riveted um, and watching it. But at the end of the day, I think if you thought one thing about Donald Trump and, and all his allies, you probably still think the same thing. So let me give you an example. I talked to some people close to the White House, close to the president after the testimony was over. And they said, you know, it was sad. They were thought Michael Cohen was sad. He was a bit sad. But that it didn't really change anything. He talked a lot, but it didn't change anything. Now, I do think what Darren says is totally true. It will change things down the road, depending on what else happens. But all the people that, you know, are close to him said, not really a sigh of relief, but sort of a, okay, well, we didn't really hear anything that we didn't expect, right? You talked about the hush money. We kind of already knew that. We didn't know all the details and who signed the checks, maybe, but we knew that that was out there. We knew some of those other things were out there. So I don't think they thought it was anything different. Now, if you're on Capitol Hill, it might be a little bit of a different story, right? House Democrats, though, still unwilling to kind of go there with impeachment. They don't want to be the people that are known for that, but they still want to investigate. So you can bet that they're going to be calling in a lot of these other people that we heard about yesterday, as Darren said. And what, what they're all saying is that they're waiting for, for Mueller to kind of wrap up, issue his final report, so on and so forth. Yeah, they want to see the Mueller report, uh, how much of the Mueller report they actually get to see and when they get to see it is is the billion-dollar question here. I mean, Mueller is not under any kind of deadline or time frame. You know, we've had these false alarms that it was going to be done this week, it was going to be done last week, it was going to be done Thanksgiving of 2017. So <laughs> um, I really hate the timing stories, and I really think that, you know, everyone should just kind of throttle back on that. At the same time, there is this political calendar. And, you know, if Mueller does go 
into 2020, at the beginning of 2020, I mean, that's Iowa time. And then we get into the same calendar that he was dealing with in 2018 of does he want to interfere with an investigation? Does he want to talk about uh, the people that he didn't indict, you know, and do the same kind of, you know, James Comey uh, roll around that we just, you know, experienced in, in 2016, where he has a big press conference and says, oh, you know, I, I did all this stuff and I did all these investigating and I'm not going to indict Donald Trump, but I'll tell you this, you know, two weeks before the election. So we're, you know, we're, we're potentially heading into that situation. And this is where the Democrats have their own, you know, they got to show their own liberal base that they've been investigating. They've been actively looking into all these things. Um, and a huge part of the base wants to impeach. Um, and obviously that brings up Mike Pence questions and, and all the things that would happen, plus Senate conviction and the challenge that that faces. So that's the challenge that Democrats are dealing with as they do this. But again, like, I mean, they're, they've probably got a Google Doc open somewhere with all of the high crimes and misdemeanors that they're collecting and whether, you know, ultimately they want to pull the trigger. I mean, they could have a list of 50 high crimes and misdemeanors, but ultimately decide, you know, Let's take him out during uh, the uh, reelection campaign rather than impeach him. You know, the way I look at this is this is one of a series of just not good things for President Trump right now. Right. So we've had a couple months of just just not good legislative. He didn't deal well with with the shutdown Congress. The, first, he had the shutdown. People said he caved. His supporters said he caved and, and reopened the government and didn't get anything. He didn't get what he wanted for the wall. He has this emergency declaration, but now it's in court. We don't know how that's going to go on Capitol Hill. You know, it's just it's just not this is just one more thing where it's just not been a good couple months. And now he's coming back from Vietnam where he didn't get he didn't get the deal that he he didn't promise, but he pretty much said he was going to get, right? He walked away from the deal, if there was a deal. So he's just hasn't had a lot of good news these last couple months. Remember Secretary Mattis's resignation letter, which seems like forever ago, but right. how that sort that of- That was in the last couple months, wasn't it? Was yeah. An earthquake on the foreign policy but front. Right. But when were there any couple good months? I mean, uh, you've got you know the backdrop of this strong economy, but that's really about it. I mean, it seems like it's almost an unending series- of scandals uh, or uh, fumbled opportunities. It's just one thing after another. And, you know, I think in a lot of ways it's, it's, it's difficult for, for voters to, to contextualize it and to, to understand it. I mean, it just that they've become almost numb to all the aberrant and, uh, conduct and governance and just can't make sense of it anymore. And I think the, the danger here is that uh, when the Mueller report does come out, it doesn't change anything. Uh, the only, if you take a look at the polling, for example, the only thing people want, the only thing a majority of Americans say they want is they want to see the report. They want to have an opportunity to look at it. But there's every indication from all the polling, almost from the start, that it's not going to change anything dramatically. And that's kind of scary on its own. Given what we think is in that report, given everything that's trickled out, there is some amazing material in there, damning stuff that just individual in events and incidents on their own might have led to a downfall of presidency. A report could come out with all of it aggregated in there and might not significantly move the dial. And that tells you everything you need to know about the Trump era. I check in with people all the time that support President Trump, not in Washington, but around the country. They still support him, but they would they would push back on something you just said. Now, for all the scandals and controversies we see, they tune out half of that, right? But they have seen two things. When was a good time, you asked, for President Trump? They've seen two things that they love. They've seen two Supreme Court justices that they are thrilled about. But not only that, the thing that doesn't get a lot of attention is these lower court judges, and they're thrilled with that. It's, it's, 
you know, they have he has remade and is remaking the court system in this country uh, with more conservative uh, judges. And there's no way to not look at that. The other thing is such a like wonky thing. But the thing I keep hearing about is he has completely deregulated things. And I know that just sounds wonky and like, who cares? But they really care. This is such a issue for Trump supporters and Republicans. And they're very happy. So they they would say those are the two things that they're really happy about. And they tune out some of the rest. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right there. I mean, the, but to me, those are achievements. There are those are accomplishments that he bullet points, he hits in his speeches. And you're right. They resonate. I mean, uh, the Supreme Court stuff especially. But I guess what I'm talking about is sustained periods of success in which the United States government and the White House are not in complete and absolute chaos uh, or, you know, racked by dysfunction of of one kind or another. And that I don't see a whole lot of sustained periods. Contrast everything that you guys are talking about now with where we're going for the next six to nine months as we have 25,000 Democrats running for president of the United States and, you know, the debates that are going to begin in a couple months. And the Democrats will be, you know, tripping over each other to try and show that America in a post-Trump world would be a more stable place. You know, we could end up, I mean, think about it, in, in two years' time, if Democrats did take back the White House and the Senate, we could be in a very similar place to we were in 2010, or 2009, I should say, after Obama's election with a all-Democrat-controlled uh, Congress if they were able to take the Senate. So, you know, things can change very dramatically here. You would obviously, in that world, have a, a minority Trump uh, party and the Republican Party, and that would be very fascinating to watch. So, you know, I think it's we're, we're on a very thin razor's edge here. And just from a legal standpoint, everyone in Trump world, you know, coming wherever we are in the next year or so, you know, there's going to be a lot of people who are dealing with prison time or dealing with huge legal bills who are in and around that Trump world. And I guess another thing that I took away from Michael Cohen yesterday to come back to that was that comment he said as he's looking to the Republicans that I was you, you know, and I'm warning you that the loyalty that you're, you know, that you're putting forward here could get you in trouble down the line. And I think that I'm, I'm going to keep that in the back of my head as I watch things going forward to see if any Republicans ultimately you know, wake up to that message. I, I, I think that the voters might not necessarily hear that, but it is going to be interesting to watch whether anyone who has been around the president, um, like Michael Cohen, flips. Obviously, you know, they're just thinking through like the Paul Manafort's and the Rick Roger Stones of the world who have not um, who have not really you know, coughed up information. But you certainly wonder if there are other people like Michael Cohen out there who are going to be looking at long prison sentences ahead or uh, legal liability and come forward and, and go in the other direction. That's a really interesting question. Be mulling it over for months, I'm <laughs> guessing. Darren, thank you so much for joining us to talk us through it. Thanks. And Anita, thank you so much for being here as well. Thanks for having me. All right, we're going to move on now to our next data point, which is 12 And that's 12 degrees Fahrenheit, which is the temperature it was in Iowa last weekend. And that's where both of our next guests found themselves and found out just how nice the people of Iowa can be when they they found themselves uh, out and about in that that 12 degrees when uh, their their cars ran into some trouble. So uh, we have a few of our national political reporters here. Nolan McCaskill, good to see you. (laughs) Nice to be here. (laughs) Yeah, it's nice to have you here. Right. (laughs) And and Chris Calago, all the same. Yeah, never been happier to be back in... uh, in the D.C. area. <laughs> so uh, so you guys were both in Iowa this past weekend. It got kind of harrowing out there, and, and you came back with some tales from the road. 
So for me, it all started when I landed in an airport called Sucks. That is the <laughs> Sioux City Airport. Uh, when I got there, and that's the code S U X. Right, is that's that, the code. Right. Well, that, that, there's a sign. <laughs> uh, so when I got there, my experience was pretty good. I mean, I was able to catch the lady at the rental service before they closed shop. Uh, she gave me the keys. She offered to warm the car up and drive it out to the lot for me, so that once I got my baggage, my bags, I could hop in. I did that. Got to the hotel. Next day, everything went terrible. I <laughs> uh, woke up, broke my glasses right before I went to Go- Governor John Hickenlooper's first event, so I had to drive with my terrible vision. Uh, it was only about 10 minutes. Went to that stop, couldn't see anybody, uh, kind of just listened to the governor and recorded what he was saying. <laughs> uh, then I drove to Carroll, which I think was maybe an hour. Uh, still couldn't see, but I was able to stop and get some super glue and try to put these things back together and <laughs> restore my vision. And meanwhile, <laughs> as you're restoring your own vision, the visibility is is going down, right? You've got weather rolling in. It wasn't too bad until I got to the Story County Soup Dinner, which was which was the last stop of the day. So Nolan and I run into each other at this Story County uh, dinner. This is before. This is before everything happens, and <laughs> I, and and the drive there. So I, I was walking in with. Uh, uh, another reporter and and who has been many 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 times to Iowa and said that that drive that we had just made about a 30 minute drive was like one of the worst things he'd ever seen and I thought well that, that must mean something you can look across the map right now tons of roads clo- roads closed still and travel not advised on a lot of other locations too left that event around I think 8:30 or 9. <laughs> Got on the road, made a couple of turns, realized, wow, this weather's terrible, but I'm a Floridian, didn't know any better, kept going. Uh, made it two hours and 15 minutes to a country road uh, with no sign saying that it was closed. Um, uh, it, uh, it closed these roads, stop plowing them, but don't necessarily, uh, people that live there, I guess, don't really need the sign, right? I mean, they could look they outside and they, the- yeah, like there's, there's no one on this road. There's mm-hmm. like literally an overturned semi that I'm driving by. A ton of cars on the side of the road that people had just left. Should have noticed the signs that there weren't a lot of cars in front of me, a lot of cars behind me. Uh, the wind was I, was, I wasn't just driving in the storm, I was actually driving directly into the storm. So as I was going maybe 20 miles an hour, uh, snow was just hit, coming directly at me, hitting the windshield, had my high beams on. I did stop at a gas station, probably should have stayed there for the night. I went to stock up, get some drinks and get some flaming hot chips to keep me up. <laughs> I was tired. Uh, continued my quest, lasted maybe five or ten minutes before the car started to ease into the left lane and ease further left and ease until it could no longer move and uh, hit a snowdrift. The car's uh, tires went up in the air, no traction at all on the Nissan Maxima. Uh, once I realized I was stuck, I kind of- Snowbank in, city. Yeah, I kind of <laughs> tried to put it into reverse, didn't move, uh, put it back in drive, turned the wheel, didn't move. I tried to get out of the passenger seat to see what the heck was going on, how stuck was I. Uh, the wind had other ideas. Once I opened the door, it kind of shut it right back. And I was like, wow, it's freezing cold. Maybe I'll just stay in here. Uh, one driver came by. I had my, my emergency lights on. He asked me if I was okay, if I needed a lift. I was a little hesitant. Uh, he gave me a number to call for a tow service. Another driver came a couple minutes later, offered to pick me up. Charlie was on the line. I called him to get his wise advice. And well, yeah, so, so, so t- t- yo, tell, tell us more about this. You called Charlie Matessian. Politico editor, veteran 
of many presidential elections and 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 reporter horror stories from from the road. And what's his reaction when you get him on the line? Uh, he laughed. Poor <laughs> boy got stuck on the road in Iowa, and he just found it hilarious. Charlie, your, your <laughs> well, defense. I, I mean, uh, let's put some context here, Nolan. <laughs> so at first, Nolan is so mellow and calm that he didn't really betray any sense of panic or fear and so I didn't think it was a big deal and so I started laughing right away and started kind of giving him a little rookie hazing like oh yeah so you skidded off the road because the Floridian can't drive in Iowa <laughs> snow and I started giggling and then when I realized then he's like no it, it's it's embedded in the snowbank. I can't get it out. I'm in the middle of nowhere. And then I started to panic a little because I began to realize like what we don't realize in the East Coast is how big uh, the Midwestern states are. The, you know, everything that's not in the East Coast. But also I knew the kind of place he was at. And I looked on a map right away and I could see there was really nothing around there at all except some small towns that were kind of far away. He had no idea where he was even, what was close, where even the car was. And, uh, you know, I, you know, you begin to do the math as the editor, like, wow he's like not in a good place and so then i began to think like okay he's got to get to a hotel you know and then i'd be able to take it really seriously and then i felt really bad also <laughs> and i would laugh at him when he called right away those winds are going to stay strong for a little bit longer here and that's going to lead to more patchy blowing snow this evening but as we head past around midnight or so those winds are going to so i opened the car door wearing uh nothing but a, a button-down dress shirt Sort of a thin windbreaker, no gloves, and no hat. Oh, Chris. Hey, look at that temperature, 13. Breeze making it feel like five below. It hasn't really felt any kind of warm out there today. Uh, I can vaguely see this big American flag outside of a house several hun uh, hundred feet up. So I, I knew I could, you know, probably get to that house. But And then this is sort of uh, a sad commentary, but the, the walk in, like, uh, knee-deep uh, uh, snow trying to get there I, I'm like almost being pushed over by the wind um, and I like thought for a second like I could pass out right here like this is these few hundred feet are that hard so I, I have like icicles hanging from my face and um, and just like the jacket had like blown off by this point and I knock on uh, this couple's door and um, uh, the thing about it that was kind of funny was they, they didn't seem all that surprised that someone was there all right, so Nolan, where does it go from here? <sighs> Next couple stops by, comes to the car. I'm on the phone with Charlie. He's telling me his own advice, saying, yeah, he would pull, he would pull me out of the snow, but he doesn't have the right materials. Uh, he's headed to the next city, which is about 10 minutes drive. Charlie's on the phone asking me, do I even know this guy? Where am I? Like, yeah, I don't know him, but he's kind of <laughs> my only hope to leave right now, so I'm going to have to take this chance. So I grab some of my belongings, make sure I had a coat on, make sure I... I had my gloves and I had to put on to stay warm. I had my computers so I could do some work in the hotel. Got in the vehicle, uh, hopped in the back seat. He and his wife drove me to the nearest city, which was Webster City. Uh, checked into a hotel there. It was like Groundhog Day for me. I'd get up at around the same time, do the same thing, go to the same breakfast with the same foods, make the same calls, have the same discussions with Charlie about how I'm still stuck. Call the airline. Hey, I'm not going to make it today. Can I reschedule for tomorrow? Call the hotel in Sioux City. Hey, I'm not going to make it back today. Could you hold my stuff for tomorrow? Call the rental service. Hey, my car's stuck in the snow. When can you get it out? Yeah, where is the car at this point? It's still, you know, I'm, I mean, I have this kind of cartoon image in my head of it just kind of like the, the back uh, sticking out of uh, an enormous wall of snow so when i got stuck it was dark i couldn't see anything so i actually 
never got a chance to look at the car and see what it looked like in the context of everything else. I just know on the ride back, once I finally found a ride to the Des Moines airport to get the heck out of there, saw a lot of cars in similar circumstances. Uh, some were flipped over. Most were just kind of stuck in the snow in the median and stuck on the other side. Uh, but I have no idea what my car actually looked like. And so they let me in and immediately... Uh, um, you know, he went and started firing up the truck. He's got like two huge snow plows and just a tremendous amount of equipment there. It was like, you know, he's got all the, the, the multiple layered clothing and they're just completely they're ready to go. And they're the tire, ready. yeah, the, 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 they were totally ready for this, which was which felt pretty nice. I'm I'm sitting there running my hands uh, under cold water because I thought like my pinkies were gonna fall off. I, I, I basically like thought I had actual frostbite from this from this few hundred feet. Eventually, a tow truck came and got it. I was told that the tow truck would pick me up too. That never happened, so that cost me another day in Iowa. You know, long story short, they. Uh, they make some chili and some biscuits. Um, uh, they're kind of joking about uh, watching. That. I had forgotten, but the Oscars were supposed to be on that night. This is like 9 a.m. And they're like, oh, yeah, we'll be watching that. And I was like, oh, yeah. You know, I, I had thought that I'd make it to this. Uh, we're, we were there to, to go see uh, Kamala Harris um, at a church, and she had canceled that one, but had a town hall a couple hours later. And I was like, oh, we're, you know, I'm going to get out of here. We're going to get the car out. And you know, uh, ended up leaving at 9 p.m. after uh, a goulash dinner with some Texas toast and some uh, corn. They, they, uh, there a lot of sugar in the corn. Uh, <laughs> I guess it's like homemade sweet corn. But they were very, very nice. Uh, never felt like they were uh, trying to get rid of me. Um, ended up spending a lot of time talking about politics and a bunch of other things, and it was... Uh, 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 certainly a unique experience. Well, it's interesting. You you went there uh, uh, hoping to spend some time watching some of the, the politicians who are running for president. You ended up instead spending a lot more time talking to some of the people who participate in this process. Yeah. Uh, every time you're kind of getting their view on things. That's true. And one of the biggest things to me was, uh, you know, we see these people and talk to a lot of people at these early town halls um, who tend to be you know, the political diehards and some of these political tourists who are coming in from states like Maine and New Hampshire and Nebraska and Iowa. You know, these are the people who want to shake the hand very, very early in the first few weeks with these candidates. Um, but then you have uh, people like the Shocks, this couple that uh, we um, visited with who, you know, they know who Joe Biden is. They know who Bernie Sanders is. They don't know a whole lot about the rest of the field. So hearing their perspective about sort of what they want to see in a candidate, um, you know, these are the people who, uh, you know, certainly uh, high propensity voters, but people who aren't as tuned in right now, who, you know, probably help decide the caucuses in 10 months. So that I thought was interesting that, that uh, you know, we are clearly uh, a lot more tuned in at the moment than uh, than some of the folks who maybe tuned into politics, maybe not as tuned in on the weather report. Yes, exactly. Uh, <laughs> not as tuned into the uh, the heartland of America. So, I mean, obviously, it was it was a it was a big experience. But uh, on that that Sunday, you you obviously you didn't get to see Kamala Harris at the at the end of all that. No, we never uh, we never made it out to see her. Um, we had been in in touch with Kamala Harris's uh, communications director, Lily Adams, who spent a year in Iowa for Hillary Clinton. And uh, I was actually sending back and forth photos of the the chili and the meals that they had been uh, cooking for me and keeping them uh, abreast of the uh, uh, of the situation. And then uh, a little while later, got a uh, 
a call from Adams's cell phone, and it turned out to be the senator herself who had uh, seen our pictures and um, had missed us that day. Chris, it's Kamala. <laughs> so I hear you got the Iowan version of Triple A. <laughs> Good for you. How's that chili, friend? Uh, well, we're going to miss you in Bettendorf, but I'm glad you're safe. Okay, take care. See you later. Bye. All right, well, thank you guys so much for sharing your 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 harrowing tales, and I hope your next trip back there uh, go a little smoother now having having uh, gone through this experience. Nolan, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. I don't think my next trip could go any worse. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, thank you for, for taking us through that. Yeah, of course. Thank and, you, guys. And Charlie, uh, th- thank you for, for suppressing your laughter this time as you were hearing their tales of woe. <laughs> Thanks, Scott. And as always, a big thank you to you, our listeners, for tuning in this week. As promised, we're going to turn things over briefly to one Nerdcast superfan here at the end of the show. Robert Shepard of Alberta, Canada, another devoted member of our international contingent, is going to help us out with the credits this week. Nerdcast is produced by Micaela Rodriguez and Jenny Emmett. Dave Shaw is the executive producer, and their illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you like Nerdcast and you're listening on Apple Podcasts, rate the show and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. Thank you, Robert. Listeners, we found Robert because he emailed us to say he was a fan. If you are a fan of the Nerdcast who wants to read the credits, let us know. Shoot an email to nerdcast at politico.com. Once again, thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week.